0: What's good, y'all? This is Code Switch. I'm Gene Demby. Shireen is off this week. So over the last few days, there's been a lot of chatter about comments made by an executive at Marvel Comics. You'll know Marvel as the publisher of titles like The Avengers and the X-Men and Spider-Man. Anyway, one of the executives at Marvel said of the company's sales slump, quote, people didn't want any more diversity. So I swear we ain't planned it this way, but today's episode happens to be about blackness in comics. So today we're talking to three black people who've carved out space for more black characters and black creatives in the comic book world. First up is Arielle Johnson, who's the owner of Amalgam Comics and Coffee House in Philly. After her, we hear from Ronald Wimberly, an artist in Brooklyn who has worked for DC and Marvel The Big Two. And finally, we'll talk to C. Spike Trotman in Chicago, who, in order to see her work realized, basically had to sidestep the traditional comic book industry altogether. But to help us with all this, We're tagging in a heavy hitter some of you may know from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Welcome, Glenn Weldon. Hey, Gene, good to be here. So, Glenn, what do you do at NPR? I write about books and comic books for the NPR website. That's right, y'all. It's a blockbuster crossover event. (laughs) Worlds will live, worlds will die, just like in the comics. Glenn's geek cred is ironclad. He's written two very smart books about comics. I read them both on vacation last year. The first is Superman, The Unauthorized Biography. And the second is The Cape Crusade, which is a cultural history of Batman
1: and comics fandom. Oh, you're a good man. (laughs) So, yeah, uh, Gene, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, comics uh, today, and a lot of people hear that word comics, and they think superheroes. Mm -hmm. And we're going to be a little bit guilty of that uh, ourselves as well. It's completely understandable because they've dominated the U.S. comics industry for most of its history, but Mm -hmm. comics are the medium, right? Uh, the, The format, the way you tell stories. Superheroes just happen to be its most dominant genre of storytelling. Today, comics are a billion dollar industry. They grew from about 600 million uh, a decade ago. And the thing that's important is that comics feed the rest of the entertainment industry in a huge way. So in 2016 alone, there was a hit Broadway play. There were 13 television series based on comics, and there were six blockbuster films, movies that made a combined $4.8 billion, that's billion with a B, uh, worldwide. So this explosion of
0: comic book influence is also happening as more black culture is finding its way into comics, right? Mm -hmm. So one of those 2016 TV shows you just mentioned was Marvel's Luke Cage series, which Mm -hmm. is on Netflix, that dropped last fall. Uh, There's the Black Panther, who made his debut in Captain America Civil War last summer. He's getting his own blockbuster franchise next year. I think Black History Month, just in time for Black History Month. (laughs) This is a very big deal. Can you give us, like, a Cliff Notes version of the history of black characters and creators in comics?
1: Right. Well, it's not surprising. Okay, so the story of the comics industry is the story of most creative industries in the country. Mm-hmm. For most of its history, the only folks who got the access, the opportunity to tell these stories were white dudes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by the time the 60s and 70s rolled around and the culture was changing, the two big publishers, Marvel and DC, noticed that the rosters of heroes and the rosters of villains and the rosters of supporting characters were whiter than the Rocky Mountains in winter, whiter than a Harold Bloom syllabus. Uh, So they (laughs) threw in some black heroes some black supporting characters. And I don't want to minimize what a big step that was because it was. I mean, here were white dudes trying to convince the powers that be to let them let some black characters in. They knew that representation was important. They knew there were black kids reading. And they also knew that uh, superheroes are a wish fulfillment, right? You want to see yourself on the page mm-hmm. to put yourself in the story. So it was all achingly well-intentioned, mm-hmm. but their ideas about the black experience were informed by some pretty limited and mostly stereotypical depictions that they'd seen in movies and books and TV. So can you walk us through some of the characters who came out of that very limited experience? <laughs> uh, well, they've changed since, but let's uh, let's go through it. So, so uh, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby created. Black Panther in 1966, mm-hmm. a hero of the jungle. Right. Uh, you've got uh, Luke Cage in 72, a black exploitation hero. Black exploitation movies were big. You, made, you make a black exploitation hero. Mm-hmm. Uh you had your Black Lightning, you had your Black Goliath, you had your Black X. You like a lot of different black black X's. Mm-hmm. Uh and there were all kinds of examples that today seem uh, more than a little bit cringe <laughs> Uh you had Black Racer who is a god of death, a uh, black dude who uh, flies around the universe. On skis. So a lot of suspension of disbelief. (laughs) Right? It's Absolutely. right. You got uh, Brother Voodoo, who... Everything you need to know about that guy is right there in the name. (laughs) And then uh, Tyrock. And if you are within the sound of my voice, I'd love you to look up to Google image search Tyrock, T-Y-R-O-C, just for the costume, man. Yeah, those shoes. So dope. The the pixie boots, the big collar. Also the fact that he was an angry black man whose power was uh, the destructive power of his voice. (laughs) So thing I love about superhero comics uh, is that the symbolism that are that's part of them is not deep. Yeah. It's, it's right there on the surface because it kind of has to be little on the nose. larger than life.
0: Uh, but, you know, there's more assured expressions of blackness in comics now, right? I mean, you have Tom Hasey Coates writing The Black Panther. Roxane Gay is actually writing The Black Panther
1: right now. Absolutely, and these are all more assured than Tyrock, but that's a pretty <laughs> low bar. Very low bar. Yeah, so uh, that's what's different. Who is telling these stories. So you've got a lot of black writers and artists who are taking these old characters that were were born out of good intentions, but not, but limited experience and fleshing them out with lived experience, not filtered secondhand conceptions of capital B blackness. Uh, That's a good thing. But as we're going to hear today from one of the folks we talk about, that leaves the mainstream industry open to accusations of tokenism or at least cynicism. Right. And so Glenn,
0: we're going to holler some folks who are trying to change the industry in their small little corners of it. And what better place to start than a comic book shop in our own neck of the woods, Philly. All right. This is Amalgam Comics and Coffee Shop. It's in the Kensington neighborhood, not the most obvious spot for a comic book shop. It's a little hood, although it's kind of gentrifying. It doesn't get a lot of foot traffic, but it was humming when I was there a couple of weekends ago. People were sipping some coffee by the bar. Some people were milling around, flipping through books. Buying up those Magic the Gathering trading cards because that's what nerds do. Do you
2: guys have 9, 10, 11? I talked to my boy over there with the, with the Power Rangers hat on. The
0: computer. So I went to the shop to talk to the woman who started it.
2: My name is Arielle Johnson, and I'm the owner of Amalgam Comics and Coffeehouse in Philadelphia.
0: So, Glenn, this is going to be hard to believe, but Johnson is the first black woman to own a comic book shop. What? At least on the East Coast. Huh. And she told me that she came really late to comics. She became obsessed with Storm from the X-Men after watching the cartoon in the 90s on Fox. For those of you who don't know, Storm is the African mutant who can control the weather.
2: And I see, like, this, you know, black woman with white eyes and white hair, like, flying around, throwing lightning at people. I was like, who is she? Full of
3: nature, I command you. Bring forth thunder and lightning.
2: Yeah, and just can... fell in love from the, the get-go. Because up until that point, I had, when I would think about comics, I always felt like I was watching someone else's story
0: so as an 11 year old girl johnson started pretending that she was Storm. she started playing superhero by herself
2: one of my favorite things to do was to run around outside on windy days and pretend i was making it the wind blow so i would be like
0: <laughs> and so johnson told me you know she was probably a little bit too old to playing pretend at 11 disagree <laughs> completely disagree but go on so after that, you know, she's 11, she starts reading her friends' comics and becomes a really serious fangirl. And she moves from Baltimore to Philly for college. She finds this comic book store in Center City, which is actually the comic book store I used to go to growing up. She went there every week. But at first, she was like, OK, I don't look the part of a serious geek. I don't fit in here. But across the street from that comic book store was a black-owned coffee shop. She loved the owner. She loved the music they played. She loved the whole vibe of the place.
2: Yeah, so I would get my books and then take my books across the street, chill, and just like read everything that I bought. And it was something about reading my comics in like a public space as opposed to like going home, you know, to like inner cave and reading comics by yourself, you know what I mean? Just something about being around other people.
0: But Glenn then that place closed. Uh-huh. But it gave her this idea. She wanted to create a mashup of the comic book shop where she didn't feel totally welcome and the coffee shop where she did. And that's Amalgam, the shop she runs now. They have events and programs for people in the neighborhood to roll through and they prominently display comic books that feature and are made by women and people of
2: color. Like, I want like black and brown children and girls and women to feel comfortable in the space because the comic book store has not always been a place that is can be a place of comfort for people like me. The people who tend to like comics are usually people who don't necessarily fit into mainstream. It's like, but those same people are very quick to not let others take part. And so, of course, not not all comic book stores, and there are really great shops out there, but I still feel like being deliberate in doing things for or with, you know, brown people, with black people, with um, girls, with LGBTQ people in mind is is not something that happens regularly.
0: So basically, Johnson had to make a space for herself. And coming up, we're gonna hear from another artist who made his own way, Ronald Wimberly. He worked within the industry to tell his stories.
4: Like, why would you go to Marvel for equity? It's like, they aren't even treating white men ethically often, (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean? That's all after the break, stay with us.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Ben & Jerry's, a B Corp committed to using the power of business to advance progressive social change. Since the company's earliest days, Ben & Jerry's has been about a lot more than just euphoric ice cream. Today, they believe that dialogue can bridge differences, promoting a more just and equitable future for all. Join Ben & Jerry's on a journey to better understand issues of race in America and get involved at BenJerry.com slash racial
3: justice. Hi, it's Rachel Martin with NPR News. And you know what? We're doing something new, and we want you to be part of it. It's called Up First. It's the morning news podcast from NPR. It's a way for you in about 10 minutes or so to get up to speed on the news of any given day, the most important stories, the biggest ideas, the stuff you need to know as you go through your day. Up First, it starts April 5th. You can get it at NPR One or anywhere you listen to your podcasts.
0: All right, y'all, I'm back with our special guest host, Glenn Weldon of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Glenn, you look like you have something to say.
1: Yeah, yeah. So as we mentioned at the top, At the Retailer Summit last week, Marvel's VP of Sales, a guy by the name of David Gabriel, placed the blame for the company's recent sales slump squarely on the fact that the company's been introducing more books with leads who are, well, I'll let him say it. Quote, what we heard was that people didn't want any more diversity. They didn't want female characters out there. That's what we heard, whether we believe that or not. I don't know that that's really true, but that's what we saw in sales, unquote. So, Glenn, can you walk us through what he's missing here? Oh, sure, there's a lot. Uh, A, uh, (laughs) the people they're hearing from are comics retailers. And for every Ariel Johnson out there doing the good work, there are 20, 30, 100 comic shop owners who just wish we could all return to the core characters, Mm -hmm. which is code, whenever you hear that, for the good old days when comics sold 5 million copies as opposed to today, when the top-selling comic of last month sold just over 100,000 copies. But there could be, you know, any number of reasons why comic book sales have fallen off, right? Oh, sure. You could look to the confusing editorial strategy of Marvel right now because they've had 12 massive crossover events in the past two years alone. Wow. Which demand a lot from readers, right? That means you have to buy up every issue of a lot of different titles just to understand the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Another thing, they've they've hiked the cover price of many individual comics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's also the fact that a lot of their most popular artists and writers, uh, the kind that people will follow from title to title, have jumped to independent comics publishers like like Image. And Mm -hmm. the reason they do that is because there they can own the characters and stories that they tell as opposed to being part of a giant corporation. That said, I, I think he's got a point. I think it's very true that there is a core readership of Marvel and DC's superhero books who resist any change, who are willing to slap down money for a Spider-Man comic, even if the price goes up. But I think that core is shrinking. Yeah. And and just anecdotally, I'll just say that if you go to a small press convention like SBX here in Baltimore, you also see, more than ever, women people of color, young people who are interested in in comics that are telling other stories, their stories. So there is also some industry data showing that the fastest growing comics readership right now is young women aged 17 to 33. Many of those people love superheroes, but many of them are looking for something different. Gotcha. Now, Glenn, you and
0: I talk with the artist and writer Ron Wimberly. He's in Brooklyn, and he's sort of straddling these two worlds between the mainstream comic book world in the independent comic book world. And Wimberly talked to us about the issues he had with the way people of color are portrayed in this medium, which is dominated,
4: editorially at least, by white dudes. That problem is a part of a problem that we have culturally in America in general, right? So um, I think in a perfect world, it would just be coincidental that a company had mostly uh, white editorial. You know what I mean? Or a lot of white people writing the books. And drawing the books. Right. And and when it comes to Marvel, uh, look, I keep it 100. I don't really read those books. <laughs> right. <laughs> like I, I see, you know, I see the kids get upset about it on Twitter. And my response at this point is kind of like, why would you even go there hmm. for equity? You wouldn't go to McDonald's for like, you know, healthy food. It's like it. <laughs> you know what it is. They literally, you know, uh, screwed over one of their biggest creators. Like they screwed over Jack Kirby.
1: Explain who Jack Kirby was.
4: I guess he's called the king of comics, along with Stan Lee. He created Fantastic Four, the Incredible Hulk. His aesthetic informed superhero comics to a degree that, like, is still felt to this day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they they aren't really. They aren't even treating white men ethically often. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, really talked to us about this
0: exchange he had with an editor at Marvel who wanted him to lighten up this character, right? She's half black, half Latina. Mm-hmm. And in comics, you know, obviously, you can have characters who have green skin, who have blue skin, who have no skin. Uh, but in this conversation about the complexion of this half black, half Latina character, things got really bizarrely
1: granular. Yeah, and the thing is that uh, this conversation could only happen in comics because they exist in this interplay of words and pictures, and the images matter, right? Mm-hmm. The, the pictures matter. But as Wimberly points out, the fact that a villain like Apocalypse can be purple or blue or lavender and nobody bats an eye, but this required an extended exchange of emails is mm-hmm. just... To me, it seems arbitrary, right? <laughs> right? Like, that's the whole point. Like, I really don't see the point in um,
4: changing the skin color between these two tones... Almost asking me to change the color is almost like saying, well, whatever you pick, lighter is better. (laughs) Right. You know what I mean? Like, which is is crazy to me. Like, why would you, you know, even if editorial asked you, higher up in editorial asked you to ask me to change it, like, why wouldn't you even be like, no, fam, that's ridiculous. I'm sorry. I'm not going to ask this. I'm not going to ask this black artist to lighten the shade of this character literally just a couple tones, and it makes no difference. Literally, the difference could be like you adjusted your white balance on the camera or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's not,
0: it's, it's ridiculous. You know what else got Wimberly really animated? The idea that black comic artists and black writers are being asked to sell black culture through comics that wasn't created by black folks to begin with.
1: Right.
4: I went to a barber shop. These cats were watching that show, um, Luke Cage, Right uh they had it on tv and i hadn't watched it and like and i hear them talking about it and you're like they're snapping it up man like this is like the sweetest kool-aid you know what i mean like they, they've got they've got them right like oh shoot what's that yo that's gangstar like you know like they've they've hit all the points they've hit all the marks it's right. like in one way it's like no okay this is great there are a lot of people who are working they're getting money uh working on this show and i'm happy for that there are a lot of actors performers there are people probably like PAs, like I'm sure this production is full of black people. I hope so, mm-hmm. right? Um, and economically that means a lot. So like I'm I'm with that. But thinking about the means of production and like these people in the barbershop, they're just consuming this image. And some of the images are problematic in re- like in ideas, you know, in, in terms of the ideas that they're selling. Like there are certain things that are very interesting about the notion of a black body being uh superhuman Mm -hmm. because like we already are perceived as such right uh so being shot up and wearing a hoodie that like that's an amazing image Mm -hmm. right but what are you saying about that right Mm -hmm. are you deconstructing how like we're not really superhuman and most of us when we're perceived as being superhuman by law officers it leads to like our death and destruction and all I can say is let me get back to work and make more stuff because like there's no way for me to like I can't hate I can't hate the game. I can try to destroy the game. <laughs> I feel like if you're gonna make bread off of it and you're gonna get the chance and some corporation is gonna give you that chance, like how are you going to destroy things <laughs> that are unhealthy? <laughs> you know. or else just be just don't just be like whatever other cartoonist was doing it before and not saying anything about it you know what i mean there's a lot of black artists who just they did their job they did their work and they didn't say anything about blackness and they got their check Mm -hmm. do that before you exploit or work in these themes and do the wrong thing
0: is kind of how i feel ronald wimberly is a comics artist and storyteller in brooklyn new york thanks man appreciate you thank you thank you
4: uh, after this, have I paid my dues? Do I get to be on, like, another uh, NPR show not race-related? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is, this is you know, I'm wondering how many I have to do. Is it, like, you know, like, how many shows How do many I have diversity to do? panels
3: do you have to be on? <laughs> right, before, how many
0: diversity panels do I have to be on? <laughs> All right, so you've got Ariel Johnson here, who's attempting to change the system. You've got Ronald Wimberly, who's trying to destroy the system. He wants to break the wheel. And <laughs> you've got C-Spike Trotman, who we're going to hear from now, who's trying to create her own damn system.
3: I am a writer, artist, cartoonist, and publisher. I am also the owner and founder of Iron Circus Comics, Chicago's largest alternative comics press.
1: How do you think your experience as a webcomic creator was different as a person of color than it was for other folks?
3: Here's the thing. Every industry has its issues with people of color and with women and uh, accessibility Mm -hmm. uh, to people of color and women, but comics has unique issues. And I can think of no better demonstrator of that than Nyla Magruder was the first woman sort of of note on record to write for Marvel. And her book dropped in September of 2016. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I think about that and I tell people about that with almost a shiver because if I had done things the correct way, you know, the way that is considered sort of the professional route where it's portfolio reviews and mm-hmm. submitting to editors and working your way up the ranks. If I had attempted that, I would have quit comics 10 years ago without accomplishing anything mm-hmm. because there are roadblocks and there are hurdles and there are people who might not even be aware that they've, they've put up these obstacles to people like me to achieve. Could you
0: elucidate some of those roadblocks that, that you've experienced or that, that people have talked to you about?
3: Um, the most common one is a steadfast belief that any story that I would want to tell is not relatable. Hmm. We sort of live in this in this culture where sort of the maybe 20-ish to early 50-ish rugged looking white male is considered the universal avatar for everyone's wants and desires and power fantasies and whatever. But a black woman's stories or a black man's stories or, you know, a trans person's stories or a disabled person's stories are considered niche and unrelatable and not necessarily anything anyone would want to read. And it may not have been articulated to me in that way, but Mm -hmm. that's sort of something I would have come up against if I had attempted to go through the customary channels to sort of, air quotes, make it in comics. The traditional
1: thing that a lot of folks in the industry, the mainstream uh, comics press, would say is, well, if you don't like what we're doing, uh, do it yourself. (laughs) that out. is the go to right what they say uh, cuz how hard could that be oh cuz how hard could that be right yeah uh oh. but you and you've mentioned this before you've pretty much called their bluff you've you yeah, you yeah. gone uh, and created your own path uh <laughs> because at the time uh, web comics even though well to talk a little bit about it was a kind of lawless frontier when you started web comics, oh, yeah. and you did it because you were getting that resistance is that why why did you choose the web comics route
3: i chose the web comics route because the kind of story i wanted to tell at the time was sort of kryptonite i guess well that's an appropriate metaphor it was like it was like kryptonite it was a long format slow burn slice of life comic Uh and it was the exact opposite of what anybody would want to make never mind me as a creator it as a concept wouldn't make money would take forever to find fans and was just something that nobody wanted to kind of lay out for for this untested, untried artist no one had ever heard of.
0: Were you imagining your characters in these long-form, slice-of-life stories? Were you imagining them as, as women of color as well?
3: Some of them, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they It starred a lot of people of color in general. Um, I grew up in Potomac, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington, D.C., yeah. and it is a very diverse community. Uh, and the, the characters in that strip, it was called Templar, Arizona. Um, mm-hmm. The characters in that strip reflected that there were all kinds of people, but what I think turned most publishers off wasn't necessarily the cast, was it was the method <laughs> with which I planned on telling the story. What do you mean? Which is it'll take me three thousand pages. <laughs> but trust me, it'll be worth it. And <laughs> in retrospect, I totally understand why no one took me up on this. Completely.
0: So how are you financing all this when you started out, when you started doing Templar?
3: I didn't finance it. Mm. I was one of those artists who had an incredibly understanding spouse. <laughs> I had a yeah, I had a husband who told me, you have ambition and you have a dream. And I think what you do is interesting and important enough and the world needs it enough that if you never make a dime off it, that's fine.
0: That's the nerdiest romantic thing I've ever yeah. heard in my life. <laughs> oh my god. We
3: met on the internet before that was even remotely OK.
1: <laughs> oh my god.
3: <laughs> yeah. You
1: were publishing uh, pages of of Templar and you would yeah. say, if you guys, you had a little thermometer and you said, if you get to 200, I'll p- publish another page. <laughs> Basically, it's a kind of a benign yeah. extortion of. <laughs> exactly right.
3: Actually, what it was, was I was updating the comic three times, three times a week. And if I got $200, which I thought was fair, I would update it four times a week. Now there are platforms online that could facilitate like Kickstarter and. When I put up that little thermometer, I immediately had like six weeks of pages financed in the first evening. And I was giddy. I was I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is something it can work. This is this is real. This is something that can totally maybe one day, not now, obviously, but maybe one day support me with a living wage. And And now your husband works for you. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and now my husband is borderline work. Well, not borderline, definitely working for me.
1: Now, you talked about the relationship between uh, being an independent uh, artist and money, how money (laughs) changes everything. Because again, comics are a labor of love. And uh, that that love fades without money eventually, right? (laughs) Right.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Money is also freedom. And money is, you know, freedom of choice, a freedom to pursue things you actually want to pursue. Mm -hmm. And the way that I make money as this independent operator who publishes my own work and publishes the work of other people, unintentionally, I've kind of built this specialized zone, I guess, that I function out of where... Much to my own surprise, I am beholden to no one, which, which suits me fine. And I encourage other cartoonists and artists and creatives in, in general, honestly, to build similar safe zones around themselves where they function with as much creative freedom as possible. And there is no barrier between a fan base and a creator.
1: Last question for me, Marvel comes mm-hmm. to you tomorrow and they tell you, "Oh, you can do whatever you want." But of course, it's Marvel. So that means you have to check it against yep. the film what what the film's doing. You have to go th- it has to go through legal. It has to go Ugh. Is there any interest in that or or are you your own artist to such an extent that that doesn't hold any appeal? I don't
3: Their think territory. Marvel can afford me. <laughs> 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 yes. So, honestly, I know it's like, I know how that sounds, and I'm sorry. <laughs> like kind of, I'm, I'm at that point right now where if you're gonna hassle me about it, I don't have to be here, man. <laughs> you know, I could be over here doing my own thing because I'm fine.
0: That was Cease by Trotman from Iron Circus Comics. And like we do every week, we ask, what song is giving you life right now? And Spike said
3: Wait for it from Hamilton. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh god. I can't sing, but I sing Wait for it. I am the one thing in life I can control. I am inimitable. I am an original. I had shivers the first time I heard those lines. I am the one thing in life I
0: can control. I am inimitable. All right, so in case y'all keeping score, that's two shoutouts in the last month (laughs) to wait for it from Hamilton the other was in the Puerto Rican identity episode I'm not mad at it that song gives me life uh, too uh Glenn thank you for rocking with us this week oh thanks it was a blast thanks for having me you can hear Glenn each week with our play cousins Linda Holmes and Stephen Thompson on Pop Culture Happy Hour Glenn you want to do the end credits with me sure that's our show this week. Follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Codeswitch. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch at NPR.org.
1: Subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. Sammy Yinnigan, Walter Ray Watson, and Maria Paz Gutierrez produced this episode. Original music by Ramteen Arablui.
0: A shout out to the rest of the Codeswitch team. Shereen Marisol Meraji, Leah Danella, Adrian Florido, Karen Goodsby-Bates, Kat Chow, and our intern, Jordan Sinus. Our editor is Jaleika Lantigua-Williams. I'm Gene Demby. And I'm Glenn Weldon. Be easy.
3: Hi, it's Rachel Martin with NPR News. And you know what? We're doing something new and we want you to be part of it. It's called Up First. It's the morning news podcast from NPR. It's a way for you in about 10 minutes or so to get up to speed on the news of any given day. The most important stories, the biggest ideas, the stuff you need to know as you go through your day. Up First, it starts April 5th. You can get it at NPR One or anywhere you listen to your podcasts.